Back to Ruth, we return this morning, picking up again in chapter 1, but expanding our reading this morning past the first five verses where we were last week through the 18th verse. This is at page 222 in your pew Bible, if that is helpful for you. Ruth chapter 1, you know where it is, Joshua judges Ruth. Last time we considered the uh, hidden providence of God, sovereignly directing, turning as with all things, even our disobedience, even our sin, and our foolish decisions to our good and to His glory. That seemed the proper way to start a series in Ruth, to be sure, filled as it is with the remarkable direction of God's providence, the hand of God in all of Ruth's twists and turns. True, we never hear God's voice in the book of Ruth, yet the fingerprints of the Lord are clearly to be seen all over this history. But providence, while turning our sins and our failures ultimately for good, in Elimelech's case, establishing the genealogy, no less of Jesus Christ, our Savior himself, as we saw last week, I say, though providence steers even our sin for our good, it never excuses them, never excuses our sins. In fact, while we may see the bright side as we did last week, the same passage also shows us the dark side of sin, the sinister nature of sin, and the sad results and consequences of sin for ourselves and for all those who come within its pale. Returning today to Ruth 1, in fact, we are humbled and we are warned about the danger of following paths and drifting in directions that are not pleasing to God and the ease with which we do so. Like the book of Hebrews written in black and white as a wake-up call to believers to warn them against drifting into shipwrecking their faith, so uh, the character Elimelech issues the same warning here in Ruth but in flesh and blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that your word has to say to us. Not everything is as easy to hear, but you have not told us anything that is not motivated by your love for us, the love we've been singing this morning, the love amazing. So we pray, Father, that we may receive your love in every form that it takes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. 
They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return uh, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. My daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go back your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, May I begin as we consider the passage before us today by reminding you of the context of this little book of Ruth. Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. And we remember how the book of Judges ends with those ominous words. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth is linked directly to that, isn't it, in this context. In verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
You see, these opening words of Ruth, they don't serve as kind of just a date stamp here to pin the book to history, does it? Ruth begins with a theological description right out the gate of the times in which these things take place. Think less uh, once upon a time and more like the beginning of uh, the Charles Dickens novel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Only Ruth falls completely and only into the latter category, doesn't she? Doesn't this book? It was the worst of times. Ruth takes day, place in, in a day of spiritual chaos for Israel, a dark, dark, dark time in the history of our spiritual fathers and mothers, a, a time when disobedience was rampant, authority failed, and the people of God were in steep spiritual decline. That's not as though there was no authority whatsoever. God's Word existed at the time. They had a Bible. They did. It consisted of all that Moses had written. And in it was found all they needed for holiness, for godliness, for righteousness. There was the creation. There was the fall. There was the explanation of the spiritual disaster that had befallen man and why the earth was groaning as it was for redemption, along with the message of the covenant, clear covenant of grace, of salvation, of redemption through faith in God. Now, the problem was not that they were without the word of God. The problem was that they were neglecting it. Interesting that we just confessed our own neglect of the Word of God a few minutes ago. They weren't paying attention to God's Word, and instead, everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes, including Elimelech. When Elimelech decided to take his family to Moab, he was doing, Elimelech was doing what was right in his own eyes. Had Elimelech had his eyes fixed on the Lord, had Elimelech had his eyes fixed on God's Word, had Elimelech had his eyes fixed on doing the will of God, Elimelech would never have moved his family to the godless spiritual wasteland of Moab. See, the choice that Elimelech makes to move his family to Moab is not a theologically indifferent choice. You may be able to serve the Lord just as well here in Owensboro as you could in Louisville or in Nashville, but the geography of Bethlehem and Moab carried deep, deep significance. God had delivered his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Elimelech specifically placed providentially in Bethlehem among the Ephrathites. Now the word Ephrath, the Ephrathites, the word Ephrath in Hebrew means fruitful and Bethlehem, the city where they lived, means house of bread. Most scholars believe that Ephrath and Bethlehem are actually two names for the same place. Uh, this Christmas, we'll hear the two brought wonderfully together again, won't we, as we read together from the words of Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Elimelech and his family are living in the place of God's blessing. They are living in the Holy Land. They are living in the place where God's people have been assigned and were specially privileged to live. The city of bread in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now that there was no food in the land, no bread in the house of bread on that particular time and that particular moment comes as very little surprise. After all, God had clearly told them in the book of Moses that as long as they obeyed him, they would enjoy plenty blessing in the land. But if they disobeyed him, the Lord would send the curses of the covenant. They would carry much seed into the field, but they would gather little. Deuteronomy 28. They would be wasted with hunger, Deuteronomy 32. You know, the famine that they were suffering, uh, they, they, could, they could certainly have expected, right? Given their disobedience to God. But the solution, you see, the solution, the proper response, that's no mystery either. It is, in a word, repentance. That's the solution. It was turning away from their sin and casting themselves in faith upon God, the Lord. That was God's designed and specific pathway provided by God for them for restoration. But Elimelech, you see, he's got a different solution. A different road, at least for his family. Looking into the faces of his hungry wife and his children, hearing their cries and their complaints, seeing that food was scarce and that what food was available at the market was, was immensely inflated in price, Elimelech packs up his family and heads for a place where he hears that food can be found in Moab. Now Moab, as you know, is known for many things, and none of them good. They were descendants of Lot. The Moabites were by incest between Lot and his older daughter. We remember the king of Moab doing what? You remember what he did? Hired Balaam, remember, to do what? To curse the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Remember the Moabite women? Stumbling block they were to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them into the worship of false gods. And as I mentioned last week, they had even oppressed Israel for a time. We read in the book of Judges, Moab, perhaps worst of all, worshipped the horrible god Chemosh in horrible ways by the sacrifice of human flesh. So Moab's hardly the place for a man to raise a godly family, is it? Yet... Elimelech moves his wife and his sons 
right into the heart of that idolatrous, rebellious, wicked place with, as we know, disastrous results for both himself and his family. That was not his intention. I don't believe it was. Elimelech's intentions seemed noble, especially at first. In fact, he did not even apparently at first intend to remain in Moab, did he? Look at the language there, verse 1. He went to what? Sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Sojourn, not stay. But in the very next verse, things have changed. And sojourn becomes remain. Elimelech started with intention, didn't he? Ostensibly to get some food for his hungry family. Ride out the famine down south. What's the matter with that, you know? But the intention then gives way to indifference. Direction becomes drifting. And before you know it, his wife and his two sons have lived there for who knows how long until Elimelech dies there outside of the land of promise, buried in a Moabite grave. His sons, who marry Moabite women, also join him in the grave outside the land of promise after having lived there ten years. Naomi, who had gone with her husband seeking bread, found instead grief and misery and widowhood. This is the danger of drifting. This is the danger of drifting, and it's a perennial danger. It threatens us, you and me, still today, every bit as much as it did Elimelech and his family back then. I mentioned that this is a warning, and it is. It's a warning repeated in the book of Hebrews, I think I said a few minutes ago. There we read, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift. lest we drift away from it. Why must we take heed lest we drift away from the faith and make shipwreck of our faith? At least a few reasons are given us here. First, we must take heed lest we drift because drifting, my friends, is the easiest thing to do. It is absolutely the easiest thing to do. It takes Hardly any effort at all, really none at all, to drift away from the faith and into the rocks. It starts by allowing your heart to drift, to drift from its moorings, the moorings of God's Word and of God's will. I may have led you to believe a moment ago that Elimelech only started drifting after landing in Moab. Uh, but, you know, the disastrous uh, drift actually started long before, didn't it? And you're probably way ahead of me, aren't you? Even as he was standing there in the land of promise, in Bethlehem, among the church, 
shoulder to shoulder with the people of God. Elimelech started the drift in his heart by setting his heart on the wrong things. Now, we have, a, we have a hard time blaming Elimelech, right, for desiring to feed his family. I mean, what is a husband and father to do when your wife and your children are rising up together in chorus to say, we can't stand even one more day of eating this ground corn. We are starving. A man is moved. He loved his wife, Elimelech. He loved his children, in a real sense. Elimelech dandled his children on his lap. He tossed the boys up into the air to their shrieking delight. He hugged them. He tucked them into their little beds at night. He wanted his children and his wife to be happy. But the drift started there you see, because he failed to grasp that it was not his wife's and his children's happiness that was to be his chief goal, but rather their holiness. He had failed to grasp in the teacher's family that they could not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He failed to explain to his hungry family that the reasons for their hunger pains were not primarily market forces or weather or international politics, but rather the rejection of God by the people of God. The famine was God's righteous judgment, and the solution was not for them to pursue bread it was for them to pursue God. Elimelech's drift started when he did not stop his complaining wife and children and say to, and explain so tenderly to them, my dears, my dear family, we're living in a rebellious time. But listen, my precious family, remember the words of Joshua that we've heard in church. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will have a Baal-free home. We will have an idol-free home, and we will walk in God's ways, and only in God's ways. Come wind, come weather, we will obey the Lord, and we will content ourselves with Him. But he says no such thing. In fact, if you read the entire book of Ruth and then look back on Elimelech, you will notice a very stark reality compared to everyone else in Ruth. Elimelech says nothing about God. Nothing about God. He says nothing about God because he thinks nothing about God. This is the easiest thing to do, to forget God. It is the easiest thing to do, to seek the gifts and not the giver. Drifting is easy, isn't it? 
Elimelech's drift started when he set his heart on things below. Not as the Apostle Paul says, setting your heart on things above. He set his heart on the material. He set his heart on the temporal, not on the spiritual, not on the eternal. And that's the way many Christians drift away today. This is the way some of you are drifting in the hearing of my voice right now. So caught up are you with getting things. And I don't mean bad things, naughty things. I mean good things, lawful things. As if they were an end in themselves. As if that were the goal. And you've forgotten God. Except maybe for an hour on Sunday morning. You give very little thought to God, to cherishing God above all, to loving God above all. So busy, busy pursuing bread have you become that God has all but disappeared from your thoughts and therefore from your priorities. Some Christians, have you noticed, they live as if they were atheists. My word, have I lived as if I were a practical atheist? Have you? Beware. Finding yourself sojourning in a spiritual Moab, it's the easiest thing to do, and it's even easier to stay. Beware. Second, you must beware lest you drift because of the disastrous results for yourself. And Lamelech, I say, he didn't intend when he headed to Moab with family in tow. He did not intend never to leave Moab. Of course not. He never dreamed he, he would come to his end in a spiritual wasteland. Nobody, nobody who goes the way of Moab from the house of bread ever plans to stay there. Look, I, I just have to take this job working on the Sabbath day. I just have to do it. But, but you know what? I'm only going to do it for a little while. You've heard that one. I have. I may have to move to a place without a good church with no faithful pastor or shepherd to care for my soul and the souls of my family because I just have to have that job. But I won't stay there. I won't stay there long. It's just a stepping stone. Right. You tell yourself that. I just need to put my tithing on a hold for a while. You know, just till I, I catch up on the bills. I just have to fudge the figures just this once in my records, uh, on my taxes, at my job, whatever. Just for now, just this time, just this time. And the sojourn you intended in Moab becomes a dead end. That's exactly what it was precisely, you know, literally what it became for Elimelech. A dead end. Do not think for a moment, dear flock, that you can set your heart on bread, that you can make the pursuit of earthly things, 
of your own comforts, your goal. That you can love mammon, that's the way Jesus put this, without devastating effect for yourself. Jesus has a very simple word for a person who does that. Do you remember what it was? One word. What did Jesus call people who love mammon, who make the pursuit of things of earth their goal? What's the one word of description Jesus uses? Fool. This night your soul is required of you, Jesus says. You fool. Remember he said that about in the parable? The man who's got his eyes on, on his things, on his wealth. So he does what? He builds bigger barns and bigger barns. His goal is his comfort. His desire is the material. And that night God requires his soul of that fool. One night in Moab, the life of Elimelech was required of that fool. What had he gained? What had Elimelech gained? Jesus answers, what profit is it to a man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? Beware, dear flock, the devastating consequences of drifting yourself. But then third, beware the danger of drifting because of the devastating consequences for others. Look at what Elimelech's drift into materialism, the pursuit of things, the pursuit of bread, of material provision, cost everyone around him. His sons start with them. They find themselves in Moab. So what do they do? They marry Moabite women. What else is there to do? When you've led your sons into the world, they will marry the world. Their marriages remain barren, and then they die. They join their father, as a matter of fact, in Moab, Moab's graveyard. Look at what Elimelech's drifting brings to the women in his life, in his, in his sphere. Widowhood, devastation, barrenness, and bitterness. Just look at Naomi, Elimelech's wife, Elimelech's widow. We considered the meaning of Elimelech's name, didn't we? What does the name Naomi mean? Do you remember? If you name your daughter Naomi, you're naming her pleasant. You're naming her lovely, delightful. But how do we find Naomi? A grasping, bitter, miserable woman. Notice what moves and motivates her. Verse 6, she rises with her daughters-in-law to return from Moab. Why? One word. Food. Food. She hears there's food back home. It's not because she loves the Lord her God and now seeks to return to him. It's not out of obedience and repentance that she runs back to God. No, back to Bethlehem 
for food. Where did she learn this? Where did she learn to live by bread alone? From her husband. From whence this materialistic, grasping heart? From her husband. From her husband's example. From her husband's leadership, she learned that her chief end, the chief end of Naomi, is her stomach. What is Naomi's chief end? What is your chief end? Naomi's chief end was to get bread and to enjoy it forever. But it gets worse. When Naomi and her two daughters-in-law go to return to Judah... Naomi urges them to what? Go back. Go back to Moab, she says. Go back to your gods. Really, Naomi? Really, Naomi? Go back to Chemosh? Should we not go with you, Naomi, to Yahweh, to the covenant-keeping one true God of heaven and earth? No, says Naomi. No. You go back to your gods. Says Ruth, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Your God is my God. And then, when it becomes clear that Ruth will not be dissuaded from coming to the land of God, to the very thing Naomi tries with all of her verbal might, every device she can think of to deprive Ruth of doing, to prevent Ruth from doing, from coming to God, from entering the church, from coming into the land of the saved, the people of God. I say when Ruth presents to Naomi perhaps the most beautiful expression in the entire Bible of fidelity and of love and of loyalty and of obedience, so beautiful we still read it at weddings today and joyous occasions. What does Naomi have to say? Verse 18, not one word, nothing, not a single solitary word. When Naomi sees the determination of Ruth expressed more beautifully than we could ever do so ourselves, she responds to this. Amazing profession of faith and of fidelity with silence. She said, no more. That's cold. That's bitter. Is this Naomi, the women of Bethlehem say, as Naomi and Ruth enter the city? Now Naomi finds her tongue all of a sudden. She snaps at them. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And in her 
coup de grace, she explains why she is bitter. Now fasten your seatbelts for this. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. In other words, I am miserable and it is all God's fault. Talk about bitter. You open the dictionary to the word bitter. You'll find a picture of Naomi there. And then turn to the other end of the dictionary and look up victim. And Naomi's picture is there too. I am God's victim. Dear ones, let me ask you and then answer me honestly. How in the world did Naomi get like this? She was led to it by her husband. By a man whose very name means my God is king, but acted instead as if their stomachs were king. Naomi arrived at this shipwreck of faith because her bark was lashed to a Limelech's drifting ship and it crashed into the rocks. Why must we avoid spiritual drift? Because it affects not only us, as, as if that were not enough. It affects not only us, but I think you might agree even worse because it affects those around us, all of those around us. Men, husbands, fathers, I want to appeal to you now in particular. Listen, men, you fathers, you husbands, you future fathers, you future husbands, listen. Elimelech is your warning. He's a warning to you. He's a warning to me. Our wives, our children, our fellow believers, those sitting around you right here in this sanctuary, they're following you. They're imitating you, men. You may lead them well, or you may lead them poorly, but make no mistake of this, you are leading them. Men, how are you leading those whom God has placed in your sphere of influence? Ladies, you're not to be excluded from this either. I say the same to you. I've run out of time, so I want to finish with a positive example, if I may. As we finished Matthew recently, we were reminded of one very godly missionary, weren't we? Remember his name, John Payton? Remember that Scottish, that godly Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, the one who lost his wife and his new baby, bringing the gospel uh, to the lost? Where did Payton learn this singular passion for God? From whence came his undying loyalty to God? If you read his biography, you find out it was as a boy that he picked it up. He picked it up from his father's prayers. Listen to Peyton's recollection. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. 
nor could I any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around my father in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him, our Savior, as our divine friend. As we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I might be like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. Here was a father who took to himself to his own heart and then to the hearts of his families, not the pursuit of bread, not drifting from the faith, but directing them to and in the faith. Not living for his own and his family's happiness so much as for his and his family's holiness. And where are they today? The generations of the Paytons. Well, I'll tell you where they are. They are in glory right now in heaven with all of the generations, the throng of generations from the New Hebrides whom they led to Yahweh, to the land of the living, to the house of bread, to the bread of heaven. God grant us grace that we may do the same.